you are probably familiar with what you're seeing on the the pages of your Bibles as you look at probably both the the left and the the right-hand page. You're probably, most likely, seeing uh, some red letters and you're thinking, wait a minute, this is the Sermon on the Mount because there's an awful lot of red letters. And that is indeed where we are this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, right there in the in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The word of our Lord from the Gospel says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's pray. O Lord, you have taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. And so we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, pour into our hearts, your greatest gift, which is love. Give us love, which is the true bond of peace and of all virtue. Give us love without which whatever we do and whoever lives is accounted as dead before you. And we pray that you would grant this for the sake of your only Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Imagine a man who finishes up the last bit of mowing the lawn and puts up the lawnmower and puts up all the other tools that he's been working with and he's hot and sweaty, he's been working for several hours under the hot and blazing sun and as he's put the last bit of his tools up in the uh, tool shed he starts making his way back around the house and he's making his way up toward the front porch and as he's coming up the front steps of the front porch the front door opens and pushing through the screen door is his four-year-old son and his four-year-old son is bearing a glass you might be thinking a glass of water. I think, I'm thinking a glass of orange juice because when I've been working in the yard, there's nothing I like more than to consume lots and lots of orange juice. I think my vitamin C is needing replenishing after such labor. But here comes that four-year-old boy and he busts open the screen door and he's sloshing around this big old glass of orange juice and then the father looks and he sees that his hands are kind of grimy. He didn't wash his hands before he prepared it. He probably needed the help of his mom to pour the orange juice, at least to get the glass down out of the cabinet. But here he stands and he's holding this big old sloppy glass of 
cold orange juice and the dirt on his fingers and from under his fingernails are starting to mix with the beaded water, the dew that's on the side of the glass, and it's just kind of imperfect. And he says, Daddy, Daddy, I brought you some orange juice. Then imagine the father says, Thank you, son. That's perfect. Now at that point, we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, is the father lying when he says that's perfect? Did he really mean something else? Or did he mean that's perfect? Thank you, son. Was he mistaken? Did the father not know what a good-looking glass of orange juice really looks like? Or did the father perhaps mean a different type of perfection than we usually mean? When we hear that word perfect, we often respond in very negative ways. Because what we're typically thinking of when we hear that word perfect is what the word perfectus means in Latin. I don't want to get too technical or too much lost into languages, but the Latin word perfectus, which is a Western word, Latin being the language of the West in the, in the, in the ancient world, that sort of perfection is a static and immovable type of perfection. It is very detailed-oriented. It implies something that is all-knowing and all-powerful, inerrant, without any mistakes whatsoever, and infallible, in fact, incapable of making mistake. That's what we typically think of when we hear the word perfect. A Latin form of perfect. Perfectus. That's what lies behind those snarky bumper stickers. Next time you think you're perfect, try walking on water. As though that's what it means to be perfect. But here we're encountered with the words of Jesus when he very clearly says, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew uses a Greek term. He's not writing in Latin. He's writing in Greek like the rest of the New Testament writers. And his word perfect is the word teleos. It is a, rather than being a static form of perfection, it is a dynamic perfection. It is goal-oriented. Teleos means to be complete or to be whole it's not just about being mature as though it, it'll just come with time. But it is about being made complete, being made whole, being made what it was intended to be. And when we hear Jesus say, be ye perfect, our Latin radars go off and we balk and we say, no, 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 he couldn't have meant that. Nobody can be perfect. 
We're not Jesus. We're not God. We didn't create everything. We can't walk on water. Don't look at me for any of that. But the funny thing is that we have few qualms with speaking of perfection in many, many, many other contexts that are not religious. I don't know about you, but I've, I've had a perfect hamburger before. I've had a perfect steak before. Bill, you can get pretty close to a perfect steak at Ruth's Crest, am I right? I've had the perfect Caesar salad before. I like Caesar salads. Lindsay picks on me. She says, my idea of a salad is a little bit of lettuce, a lot of dressing, and some croutons, and maybe some cheese. That's why I like the Caesar salad. I've had perfectly cooked ribs. I've cooked perfectly cooked ribs, to be honest with you. I'm not bragging here. I'm just speaking the truth. I've seen perfect paintings. I love the work of Van Gogh. And to see many of his paintings, I would very honestly say that's perfect. I used to watch Bob Ross as a kid. It was one of the most relaxing things to do on a Saturday afternoon after you've gotten back from a baseball game and you're nasty and sweaty. Just sit down in your dad's recliner and watch some Bob Ross. Man, you'll be asleep within a few minutes. But somehow I'd always wake up and find the finished product and be like, wow, that's perfect. He could paint a happy little tree very well. He could paint it perfectly. We've seen perfect automobiles. Some of us have owned perfect automobiles. Ridden the perfect motorcycle. Fired a perfect handgun. We've seen perfection when it comes to house cleaning. We know what it's like to have a perfectly folded dress shirt. What did Jesus say? He did not say, be good, be nice, be kind. He did not say, be sweet or be fair. Neither did He say, be better than you used to be. He didn't say, be better than others. Be better than the next guy. Be better than that other loser. He said, be perfect. And not only that, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Even your enemies. He said, don't love with qualifications. To love is not to pass out applications and take up resumes to see who's worthy of your love. You are to love as your Father in heaven loves. And He loves all without qualification. 
And notice what love is. It is doing good. His illustration, your Father in heaven causes it to rain on the, those that deserve it and those who don't. He causes the sun to rise above those who deserve it and those who don't. Jesus began this passage by saying, You've heard it said, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you'll look at your text just briefly, you'll see that's in quotes. It probably has a little letter off to the side or maybe a, a footnote at the bottom of the page that refers you over to Leviticus chapter 19, the passage that Aiden read for us this morning. But he follows that by, you've heard it said, love your neighbor as yourself and, what did he say? Hate your enemy. Wait a minute. Notice here, there is no reference to an Old Testament passage. Because the words, hate your enemy, are nowhere found in all of the scriptures. What's he referring to here? He's referring to the conventional wisdom of the day. Well, yeah, God said to love our neighbor, but that enemy, he's not my neighbor. That punk's getting what's coming to him. He's a jerk, and I'm going to treat him like a jerk. He hurt me, I'll hurt him. And it's amazing what we do in our conventional wisdom regarding religious and theological and ethical matters. Because when Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your, in love your neighbor and hate your enemy, he's quoting a verse from Leviticus 19 and the phrase that is the first half of that verse explicitly says, you shall not take vengeance or hold a grudge against others. But we don't want to hear any of that. We'll quote the nice part. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then we'll add our conventional wisdom to it. Hate your enemy. Jesus says, be perfect. Love your neighbor as yourself. Even your enemies. Don't love with qualifications. Now when we hear Jesus say, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Again, our, our radars pop up and we think, no, 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 that's not possible. That's not possible. Surely he didn't say that. Whoa, he said that. Okay, well, surely he didn't mean that. What did he mean? What Jesus meant was not try your best. What Jesus meant was not aim for perfection and come up somewhere short, but closer than you were before. This is not the sort of thing, like the old quote goes, shoot for the moon and even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What he meant was what he said, and what he said was what he meant. 
He said, be perfect. And that's exactly what he meant. Be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now we've got to block out of our minds that, that Latin whispering that says, you can't do it. You don't know everything. You can't do everything. You can't be everywhere. You can't raise the dead. You can't forgive sins. We've got to block that voice out and listen to the voice of Jesus and what He actually says and what He means by what He says. Again, teleos. What Jesus meant when He said be perfect was be perfect. Be complete. Be whole. Be exactly what you're supposed to be. All things about you and your story being considered. To be perfect for a four-year-old is far different than being perfect for an eight-year-old. I mean, even in the normal, the normal activities of everyday life, the, the things we, that we do in life, like that glass of orange juice, pouring a perfect glass of orange juice and pre presenting it to your dad as a four-year-old is far different than pouring a perfect glass of orange juice and presenting it to your dad as an 18-year-old. As an 18-year-old, to an 18-year-old, if it was my child, I would probably respond, you, you could have washed your hands before you brought me the orange juice. But thank you, nonetheless. I would probably say something more like, thanks, rather than, that's perfect. Making beds. Most guys make beds far differently than most girls make beds. They tend to be a little bit more attentive to the details. Sometimes there are some, some, some changes in that uh, scenario. I'm not trying to stereotype or anything like that. But typically, when the, when the bed sheets have been changed and a wife walks into the room... And the husband's the one that has changed them. She'll say it's perfect even if it looks terrible because he had the initiative to go and change the sheets. But perfect in that Greek sense. Perfect in the sense that Jesus meant it. It's not something less than perfect. It's a different type of perfect. It's not that Jesus is not meaning what he's saying. It's, it's that we're failing to hear what he is actually saying. And what he's saying is that we ought to be complete. We ought to be whole. We ought to be exactly what we should be. Everything being considered about ourselves, our infirmities, our lack of knowledge, our often ignorance. 
our quirks and mannerisms, our idiosyncrasies, all those things being considered, our hurts in the past, our worries about the future, we can still in this very moment be what God wants us to be in this very moment. And that's what Jesus insists we must be. There are those with a chip on their shoulders who deny Christian perfection as a real possibility. It's impossible. It's maybe an ideal that we aim for, but you'll never get there. And don't you even try to act like you've gotten there. And then there are those who claim Christian perfection as a personal reality who often have a chip on their shoulders as if they could do no wrong. As, as if anything they do, it doesn't matter how good or bad it was, as long as it was done from, from, from a pure heart, nobody can, can say anything about it. And both of those are missing the idea of what Jesus means when He says, be perfect. As Methodist people, it's important to know what our founder, John Wesley, had to say about doctrinal matters such as this. And when he was answering the question, what is Christian perfection, he said this. And this is not something that's unique to him. In fact, the phrase Christian perfection is not coined by Wesley. He picked it up from Irenaeus. And Irenaeus, you'll see, actually picked it up from the New Testament, the words of Jesus himself, be perfect. John Wesley said, Christian perfection is the loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This implies that no wrong temper, none contrary to love, remains in the soul, and that all the faults, words, and actions are governed by pure love. He went on then to say, this also includes loving your neighbor as yourself, because you cannot love God in this sort of way without loving your neighbor. And elsewhere he said, who's my neighbor? He's two people. You've heard me say this before. He's the next person I meet and he's the person standing before me. That's my neighbor. Whether that neighbor is an enemy or a best friend, my neighbor is the person I'm with and the person that I'll meet next. And we cannot love God without loving our neighbor. Loving God necessarily includes loving our neighbors. And loving our neighbor necessarily includes loving our enemies. And what does it mean to love? Love is about value. We love those things in which we find value. Those things that contribute to our joy, to our appreciation, to our peace. We love those things that we think are special and are of value. Love is about finding value in the object, in the beloved. But love is also, it's not just a feeling, it's not just a sentiment that we have, it's not just an affection, it's not warm and, and, and cozies. Love is also about building value, it's about investing value, caring for those things that you love.
And so when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, when he says specifically here, love your enemies, he's not talking about just mustering up a smile and a little bit of politeness. He's talking about finding the God-given value in them and trying to enhance that value, trying to invest in that value. Love is sometimes hard. Investing in the value of my children sometimes means I correct their grammar. Yes, I do correct their grammar. Sometimes I laugh it off, especially when they're four and under, because it's hilarious. Beyond four, okay, it's time to get your fingers out of the orange juice and, and, and start speaking correctly. Christian perfection is not a variety of things. It is not perfect performance. To have a heart that has been made perfect by God, to, make, to have a heart that has been made complete and whole by God does not mean that I always operate to the fullness of my potential. It is not about perfect performance. It is not about sinless perfection as though I can do no wrong. It's about having a heart that is filled with the love of God. Notice it says, Wesley said, this implies that no wrong temper, none contrary to love remains in the soul and that all the thoughts, words, and actions are governed by pure love. To govern doesn't mean you always get your way. And so even though the love of God is governing all of our thoughts, words, and actions does not mean that sometimes those thoughts, words, and actions don't fall short of love. It means ultimately they are directed by it. Ultimately they ought to follow it. But Christian perfection, again, is not perfect performance. It is not sinless perfection. It's not freedom from infirmities and mistakes or ignorance or temptation. It doesn't mean that life will always be sunshine and roses the rest of our days. It doesn't mean that we won't fail. It doesn't mean that we won't ever screw up. It doesn't mean that we won't ever say the wrong thing. But it ought to mean that when we say the wrong thing, that we go and we make it right. Jesus commands and calls. He commands perfection and He calls us to it. His command and His call is both His instruction and His invitation. He instructs us, be perfect. Love even your enemies. Love God 
with so much of your being and so much of your heart that his love is poured out of your being and poured out of your heart on all, even your enemies. And in that command, he offers a call. Come and be made perfect. In that instruction, he offers also an invitation. Come and have your heart so filled with the love of God that you can even love those who hurt you and who do so purposefully. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. It's in doing that, he says, that we are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. His command and His call, His, his instruction and invitation, he, give to, he gives to us as a gift of God. And because it's a gift of God, it's also a promise to all who seek it. You may think, Pastor, there's no way. I, I hear what you've said. I got you. But I can't be perfect. My response would be twofold. First of all, remember, we're not talking about sinless perfection and we are not talking about performing perfectly. But secondly, you can at least seek it. You can make yourself available to God and say, God, would you transform my heart so much that I don't keep record of the wrongs that have been done toward me so that I can get even? So that I don't tally up a point system for those who are my friends and those who are my enemies to know who I ought to treat better. God, would you so fill me with your love that loving you becomes so easy and so natural that loving others would become so easy and so natural. Even, even when it's hard, the decision to love them has already easily been made. John Wesley preached a sermon titled The One Thing Needful. And in that sermon, he talked about um, Mary and Martha and how Jesus was visiting Mary and Martha. And you'll remember the, the, uh, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha's up running and doing the housekeeping and making sure that everything's ready, getting tea on and getting the table set and getting everything just right. She wasn't getting the tea on, but that's what we'd be doing 
you know, running around doing doing all the stuff because we got a guest in the house. We got to make sure everything's done properly for the guest that's in the house. And Martha said, "Jesus, would you mind telling my sister to shut her mouth and close her ears and get in here and help me out? We've got work that needs to be done." And Jesus said, "There's one thing needful in life, and Mary has chosen it. I will not rob her of it." John Wesley said, "The one thing needful in our lives." is to have the image of God that has been broken and marred from the fall and from sin, to have it renewed. To have our hearts purified and cleaned up so that we might begin looking like God again, so we might begin looking like Jesus. I'm convinced that the one thing needful in our world is for Christians to begin acting like Christians. You know, that word Christian was originally a, a term of mockery, kind of like the term Methodist. It wasn't a pleasurable term. It was a, a cutting remark about John Wesley and the small groups that he was forming. Oh, those Methodists. In the ancient world, oh, those Christians, those Little Jesus is running around caring for the poor, saving babies who have been left out in the elements to die. What's with those weirdos? I'm convinced that there will remain injustice and cruelty and hatred and violence in this world, even more so until the church is able to start acting like the church, until the church begins taking seriously what it means to love God with every ounce of our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves, as our very own selves, even those who curse us and mock us and ridicule us and harm us. What does the world need? And he's perfect Christians. Not that we would always behave perfectly. Not that we do everything right. Not that we know everything. Not that we're better than everyone else. But our hearts are perfectly God's. They are completely His. They are wholly His. And therefore, they can perfectly love others. Let's pray.